welcome to the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase. Showcase, finally back after only a slight hiatus of a few years, as I obviously put the show on hold after 50 wonderful episodes to go off and concentrate on other projects such as TV Good, Sleep Bad and the Asian Cinema Film Club, and put the list on one side, but like any good obsession, it just sat there torn to me as that mountain that's still left to be climbed, and it felt only right that the time seemed perfect that we come back and we take another crack and see how much more of the mountain we can climb and tonight we're going to be looking at david cronenberg's definitive body horror entry in his filmography which is 1983's video drum and joining me of course is uh is my guest uh tonight it's mr nicholas rehack from french show sunday welcome to show nick it's uh it's been a while since we spoke last to say the least it has, it has. I mean, I, I hit you up on Facebook every so often, we back and forth, but I remember sitting here and I was thinking, I'm like, you know what, I haven't talked to Elwood in the longest time and I'm really excited to do so. That's good. I have to, like, the weirdest, like, schedule, so it's it's hard for me to, like, do things such as, like, The Lamb, which I think is how a lot of us tend to congregate, but I'm, it's, I'm very excited to obviously have you on, because... Obviously, you're over at French Toast Sunday at the moment. You're still doing the podcast. I mean, how long has French Toast Sunday been running for now? It's been certainly going a while. As of this recording, uh, I think we're touching on nine years, which is just insane. I can remember when we used to be in Jason's mom's basement (laughs) (laughs) recording episodes, and then we've just steadily evolved and evolved. Um, It's been a little shakier lately, scheduling-wise, just because uh, a lot of life is happening. Uh, Lindsay's off remodeling her home. Uh, Rob and Jess recently got married. Uh, You know, just a whole lot's going on, but we're hoping in the coming weeks to get back on track, get back on schedule, and start, you know, back to our weekly uh, releases so looking very much looking forward to that because i miss we we are since we're all in baltimore we're literally 30 minutes away from each other like in a in a net if you will and uh we always hanging out outside of podcasts but to actually get together and sit back down and you know run some episodes i'm very much looking forward to it yeah as as we've uh, certainly mentioned before on, the, on this show that with french or sunday you're in this very unique position of that you have this group that that meet up together unlike other sort of shows where they're spread out around different parts of the country or different parts of the world um as in some cases some shows and with you guys it's this really nice sort of friendship group where you started off as as friends like i think you were all like working at best buy or something and you sort of come together as this film critiquing team and the fact you're still going after so long is just really kind of commendable but as you said life gets busy um people go off and get married and get jobs and careers and things and the fact that you're still able to still come together and and put together these uh shows is really so interesting how would you say the sort of like your sort of tastes have sort of differed really from when you started do you find yourself still seeking out the same sort of films or do you find your your tastes have sort of like become a little matured that you're getting into sort of directors and films that you probably wouldn't have wanted to look at when you first started out reviewing films 
Oh, I've definitely grown. Um, I've I've started watching a lot more horror than I have before. Before it was just little to nothing, and now I'm I'm getting more and more. Like if we're in a pool right now, I'd say I'm up to my knees. Whereas before, I was kind of looking at the pool. Um, <laughs> it's also kind of pushed me into seeing a lot more foreign film and just exploring more independent film as well. We have the Maryland Film Festival. I believe it's going on next weekend. Unfortunately, I'm out of town. But that's something that the gang got me started into going and seeing. So seeing more independent films, seeing a lot more documentaries as well. So just diversifying what I'm into. And it's been nothing but rewarding because now I'm finding new directors I like, new actors I like, stories and ideas I thought I would never see on screen. I'm seeing them and they're just you know, absolutely wonderful. And it's led me to meet all different kinds of people from all different walks of life through various podcasts. So it's been nothing but the best. Fantastic. And tonight we're obviously talking about one of the great visionary directors in Debbie Cronenberg. And when it comes to us now looking at who the sort of visionary directors are at the moment, because certainly a lot of the old masters have either perhaps kind of lost their way or now longer able to get the funding. Certainly with the case of Cronenberg, he's having to look to European and certainly Japanese funding to get his films made. Um, other directors such as such as Lynch have perhaps moved away from filmmaking it seems and on the more sort of horror sort of scale there people such as like John Carpenter just seem to really be struggling to find that same sort of mojo that they had back in the heyday of the 80s so I mean who would you say at the moment is all like the visionary directors to watch that have sort of like picked up this sort of mantle that that these uh, directors sort of paved the way for? I still feel that Lynch is somebody to watch. Um, I absolutely love Twin Peaks The Return. I love just about every episode. One or two I could have done without, but for the most part, I absolutely loved it. Um, even It might not be everybody's cup of tea. It might not be exactly what we remember and adored from the show. But some of the stuff he's able to put out there, like there's episodes, particularly episode number eight. He wrote that. He came up with that. He created it. And he put it out there. He floated it past a studio, in this case Showtime, and he said, hey, I want to do this. And they said, go for it. They gave him some money to do that and to be able to put something so experimental, so creative, so surreal at times is just – just mind-boggling in its own, and it's something that, unfortunately, I don't think we'll see again for some time um, unless we start to have a lot more uh, niche streaming services popping up and that kind of thing. I actually think that right now we're kind of gearing more towards Spanish cinema. I think uh, like your Guillermo del Toro. Um, this is terrible. I can't think of the other director. He just did uh, Roma. Dang it. What's his name? Oh, Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, I think some of those directors were starting to kind of shift and look to see more what they're doing because if you look at Cuaron, like a lot of people are like, okay, Children of Men, but he's done other fantastic films as well. And all that does is just kind of open you up to see what else he's doing. Del Toro, I feel like he's kind of coming back. He just had a lot of success with Shape of Water, which I absolutely loved. So I think we're starting to look more south when it comes to our film, and I think that's exciting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know what it is. Certainly, with the Hollywood system at the moment, there seems, despite there being all these different sort of platforms of for, for a film to obviously be released and be distributed, because it's no longer just the case of that it has to come through the sort of cinema cinema mm -hmm. system and then on to obviously into the home video market. Now we've obviously got various streaming platforms that are really sort of now evolved to the level where they're 
essentially competing with the studios when we look at the things that look like what Netflix and Amazon are doing for their independent productions and they're just putting out these incredible things or just even just with the case of Netflix picking up the distribution rights as we were talking about before we came on uh, the show tonight here in the UK we finally got to see Snowpiercer thanks to to Netflix picking up the distribution rights for it Um, again Bong Joon-ho wonderful uh, Korean director and someone who's filmed after seeing Snowpiercer I just want to really just dive in and just watch everything in his filmography um, which has kind of surprised me because I didn't care for the host and yet with one film he's completely changed my opinion of his work entirely and another film that uh, we also talked about picked, being picked up by Netflix was The Wandering Earth which is a Chinese film but it's just so visually different uh, than the Nathan that we're seeing in, in Hollywood at the moment and would you say that as as moviegoers that despite what Hollywood would have us believe we're actually getting more adventurous in our taste it's no longer the case where it's sort of like this intellectual uh, sort of group that that will look at foreign cinema that moviegoers in general are sort of more brave in the sort of cinema they're willing to watch I think so because I think anymore now if we want something safe, we go to the movies because if you look – at least in American cinema, if you look at what we have in the theaters right now, it's sequels or remakes or prequels or sequels of sequels. It's just stuff that we're familiar with. So if you want safe, you go to the movies and anymore if you want something a little more challenging, a little more exciting, you go to Netflix or Amazon Prime or uh, I know Criterion Collection. They finally have their channel up and running. So you kind of go out and seek it and look for it yourself and it's still a very much word of mouth type of thing or or in this case, you know, Twitter or Facebook. You're still going to people and saying, hey, have you seen this thing over on Netflix? And you're like, no, what is it? And then you explain it and get them excited and they go off and see it or and you can insert like i said at prime or hulu or or what have you but i do think we're becoming more adventurous i just don't think we're as aware of it as we as we are fair enough and i mean just to go back to what you were saying with uh, david lynch's return i mean that that was a very sort of brave uh filmmaking because it is very lynch i mean how long did we wait for him to produce the the return i mean it's I think it was so, 23 years, 20-something years. I mean, I was surprised that we ever we ever saw it. I mean, the original mm-hmm. series is diverse enough as it is, whereas the first season's very sort of accessible. It's this sort of this murder mystery. And then mm-hmm. when we get into the second season and we wrap up that first case and we have, what, six, eight episodes of d- where he's trying to put together a second case. Um, and we're also introduced to, like, all the mythos of, like, the Black Lodge and, obviously, at the end, the evil... Evil Dale, um, the Evil Dale. I was really sort of excited when we got the return to see how it goes, and I mean, I have to say, I'd, I'm one of those detractors who I think I got everything in three episodes, and I felt that everything else was kind of like it was kind of like a Lynch, Lynch being Lynch. To be honest, I know that there's people like yourself, Nick, who just absolutely adored it, and certainly we've uh, talked about it on French Toast Sunday. You did like an extensive recap of uh of what was what was great about uh about the return and when it got to the end of the return i'm not sure that i was as on edge that the fact that we they may not get finished as i was when we got to the end of season two mm-hmm. um it felt like yeah it has an ending and if we don't see a return to twin peaks i mean i'm happy with how it ended um even though it does obviously end on that cliffhanger so 
Yeah, I, I feel like with, with season two, we're kind of left and we're stuck. And in this one, we're stuck, but at the same time, we're not. Because I feel like we had two, we got two endings with the return. Uh, in episode, or excuse me, part 17, we got the happy ending that everybody kind of wanted to see. But then I feel like in part 18, we got like, well, that's nice and all, but here's what's really going to happen. And David Lynch kind of went on and did his own thing, very much like in Wayne's World, where they kind of do Scooby-Doo endings <laughs> at the end and uh, mix it up at you. But I don't think no matter where we go from here, I think it's exciting just to see what he does next, be it Twin Peaks or not. So any Lynch is good Lynch in my eyes. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Lynch is, I think, yes, as much as I adore Lynch's sort of early films, I mean, Eraserhead I came up with, that was on my entry point into cult cinema and things such as like The Elephant Man and Wild at Heart. I think with Mulholland Drive is when myself and Lynch seemed to be stopped talking the same language because when I looked at Inland Empire, I thought that was just, uh, that was just that was just confusing. I'm not sure if that was even a film. It just felt like someone's art project for two plus hours. So I, w- I will agree. It's uh, once you hit Mulholland Drive, it does get a little bit tougher. Inland Empire is definitely it's not the easiest uh film to watch i find myself kind of uh uh, returning more to like mulholland drive uh and like you said uh wild at heart personally but lost highway i kind of get into every so often and inland empire i i'm there but i'm not it's not clicking you know what i mean yeah i think when it comes to the return though i there's a a review of a David Bowie album that's always that I think best describe my feelings on the whole Lynch situation. It was sort of like he's still the alien, but at least he wants to talk to us, and that was how I felt about the mm. return. Yeah, <laughs> that's, like... that's a perfect way to say it. <laughs> um, onto onto our sort of your selection tonight. When you obviously chose to talk about 1983's Videodrome, a film which is really sort of like sums up all the sort of key elements that make Cronenberg what he is. I mean, Cronenberg's... Even the name Cronenberg, it just conjures up something, like, dark and delightfully naughty, much like the word Blue Lingerie. (laughs) It's just so nice to say Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, here we obviously have a director whose main obsessions are bodily mutation, disease, and infection, and something which all, all three he manages to work into... A f- idea which was born out of a childhood obsession of finding transmission signals of um, of local TV stations when he was like growing up in his native Canada, and he was like much like uh, the film's protagonist Max. He was like constantly feeling that he might stumble across something that he shouldn't see, and it's this idea which is explored initially in. Videodrome, where we're introduced to this dystopian vision of Canada where violence and sex are very much sort of like so much of the norm that um, that Max here played by why can't I remember his bloody name James Woods yes thank you uh, <laughs> Max plays by James Wood he runs a sort of a local TV station called uh, Civic TV whose speciality is basically softcore pornography and violence. And he manages, while looking for new content for his channel, to stumble across a signal for a show called Videodrome, in which 
the audience are basically tortured and murdered and mutilated by mass men and sees it basically as this perfect fodder for his his channel and in turn manages to find himself into this into this rabbit hole of voyeurism and violence as the deeper he goes he finds out that video drone might just be the surface of something a lot more darker and weirder as we've said before i mean you you, you said before that uh, when it came to horror you were sort of like just looking at the pool and now you're sort of willing to wade in why did you choose video drone because this seems like so out of your wheelhouse when i was like looking at the list of like select things you wanted to talk about from the list it was like why would you choose Videodrome? It just seems like so like the sort of film that you wouldn't enjoy. It does, doesn't it? Um, the French Toast Sunday Gang, they definitely enjoy Cronenberg, and I'm slowly coming around to it. So uh, every so often, our local um, a, a local retailer will have a sale on Criterion Collection films and the, the Blu-ray. I picked up the Blu-ray for this because I thought I had seen it before. I really thought I saw this movie before, but then I started watching it, <laughs> and I and I realized, oh, I've never seen this before. <laughs> so really, it was by accident that I picked this because I I could have swore in my heart of hearts I'm like, oh yeah, James Spader's in it and all this other, and then I started watching it and I'm like, oh, I couldn't be more wrong about this. Um, but I ended up actually enjoying it a whole bunch, and it really left me wanting more. I kind of wanted a deeper dive into this world. I wanted a little bit more of the story. I wanted more of the characters. I kind of wanted just to flesh it out more. I feel like the film got real surface level. Hmm. I mean, this is really Cronenberg working in his golden sort of period. I mean, he'd, at this point, he's really sort of found his groove with with movies such as like The Brood, which he'd done before, and with his early sort of experiment films so films such as like Rabid and Shivers he'd really while the body horror elements were certainly there he was just raising more sort of disgust from critics than really sort of generating the sort of buzz and interest with the the message he was trying to make and even when he went off to try and do things such as like Fast Company which is like a car smash movie he was still creating like interesting images but the critics were just not wanting to know and Videodrome kind of changed everything as it brought in both uh, that body horror element but at the same time really sort of marked him out as this very unique talent and very original voice in cinema even though the film failed horribly at the box office through word of mouth and in the home video market it sort of found this cult following much like a lot of Cronenberg's films and for them myself this just this film along with the fly uh remake just sort of embodies like everything that cronenberg is i mean when you look at this film we've got body mutilation is as james wood's character undergoes a number of interesting mutations including having a chest vagina which also doubles as a vhs player and just he how the interactions that uh that we have with with television in this case it sort of foreshadows in many ways how people how we would come as a society to interact with technology whereas if we were to remake this today we could just change television and change it instead to the internet exactly um, as basically what uh Cronenberg is trying to create here is this idea of a world where everything we're getting is just through our tel through the television sets and certainly when we look at this world even though he avoids like any of the usual sort of cliche things of like marking it out with a year or anything um 
it's a very sort of different vision of the world. The fact that you've got talk radio where people can phone and phone in and have like nihilistic conversations with Debbie Harry, who I was very surprised would want to attach herself to this film. Um, I mean, she was totally had a career with Blondie, and here she dyes her hair and becomes this masochistic sort of character who joins uh, Max's obsession with Videodrome. So, uh, but how did you find her? I mean, she's not really known for her acting ability. No, it it really threw me off guard, and I thought she was fine. But then all of a sudden, there's that shift where she's just kind of not in the film as much, and I think to myself, like, well, I'm kind of disappointed. I wanted to see more of her. But then I guess it could kind of make sense a little bit to her kind of getting into film. I can't remember if this is like her film debut or maybe she's done like bit parts and other things. But I kind of went into this in my head. She had a much larger role. But then, like I said, comes for the execution of it, not as much. But I think it adds to it because here she is, lead singer Blondie. Now she's trying film and you know, it's a little mysterious, a little this, a little that. And I thought it worked really well. I thought she did a good job. Yeah, I mean, since so she had done. Uh other sort of bit roles i mean things such as like daily hero and downtown 81 but this is sort of like her real sort of first major sort of role and the same really goes for james woods i mean james woods was just a sort of background character he wasn't even though we now sort of know him as this leading man i mean up until video drama he was sort of like just a a background supporting actor mm-hmm. and i think when whenever i'm I think this is a film which really sort of sparked to myself that real sort of interest in James Wood's films. I mean, when we look at his filmography, he made three of my favorite James Wood movies back to back. He did this and then he did Once Upon a Time in America and he did Salvador. Um, and just there's something about James Wood's character that he just embodies his character, his sort of presence, his sort of swagger. And he's got... I, I mean, I just love the fact that here is a man who shamefully, shamelessly, like promotes the fact that yes, my station's all about sex and violence, and you know, I'm giving the people what they want. Mm-hmm. And I can't see any other actor being able to just have this sort of shameless. He, he's never apologetic for what he he's broadcasting or what he's giving the people. He's just in the way he presents, he's to providing a service. And he's so charismatic about it. I feel like if you gave it to any other any other actor, they might not sell it as well. And you're just like, yeah, okay, let's get to the rest of it. Or they would just come across a little more cocky, a little more aggressive about it, and you would feel very put off by it instead of like kind of maybe not sympathetic, but you're definitely on board with him as the film goes. You're like, yeah, what's you know what's this part? What's that part? And you kind of go along with them in the process. So I think he was wonderful in this. Yes, and. I also love the fact that he never he never chooses to overplay the more fantastical elements. Like when we get into the elements of like body body uh, metamorphosis and it, this sort of melding of like of flesh and technology uh, that we start to see because it, it starts off as this this really sort of standard thriller and then the sort of last forty minutes it just goes batshit insane. As we get this idea, and I'm just going to warn ahead that there is going to be some spoilers ahead. I'm going to try and keep it to minimum as we can. Where Videodrome is this is being used as this uh, weapon, sort of like a almost like a kind of mind control, where it can be used to sort of like brainwash the masses. And the fact that it was never really sort of intended for public consumption, yet Max Max has sort of unwittingly exposed himself to it, and it brings in the, all these like uh these really sort of like 
out there characters when we look at like Brian Oblivion by here played by Jack Creeley who only appears uh, via video recordings and he's uh, sort of like created this cult around around television and these when Cronenberg presents his ideas uh, most much like in the brood when we got psychoplasmics but if he presents an idea you you kind of in your head like question is that a real thing could this be real because he presents it in such a sort of grounded way there's no sort of fantastical element to it even though these are very fantastical ideas i mean the whole idea of uh, what video drum is how did you that that work for you nick I just uh, you said it earlier you hit the nail on the head you could easily make this film again today and just substitute TV with internet I felt like it was just so it still held strong today because I'm like oh this is totally believable maybe watching it in the 80s it would be a little more fantastical and something to kind of wrap your head around but for me watching it in 2019 having the knowledge that I have it's absolutely believable that a system like this could happen. And, of course, a signal from the United States that has mind control power is definitely believable. Um, but it's something that is just fascinating, and it's something that we still have today. It's it's All it is is just addiction. It's, it's the same signal that, you know, when Game of Thrones comes on and everybody immediately locks in and has to watch it and has to talk about it. It's, you know, take it away. You don't have it. Same thing with video drum. If you don't watch it, you don't have that addiction. You don't have that control. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the society's going to be like once Game of Thrones ends. What are we going to do when we when we are uh, when we have our addiction taken away? It's like where do we go from here? It's well, it's kind it's, of like if they start making stop making Marvel movies suddenly. Yeah, that would be that'd be interesting too to see what happens next to see how studios revolt and what they try to push genre wise next. If we you know jump back to western or even if we jump way back to musical. Um, but I, I feel like once Thrones is out, we'll still have Stranger Things. We'll still have plenty of other shows to jump onto the bandwagon. And Amazon's working on Lord of the Rings, so I'm sure that'll be interesting. Yeah, it's I, I, I it's this, it's this. Uh, we are really just a society built on on consumption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's only becoming the more obvious when we look at the the current market when Disney buys up Pixar and they buy up Marvel and. <clears throat> just basically take any good idea and run it into the ground. This is yeah. idea that they're fulfilling this this uh, this addiction that we have to just just have these words. Before it always seemed to be the case that you would have them every three to four years. You would get a new one, and now we just seem to we got what like three Marvel movies a year being given to us. Yeah, pretty much anymore. And that's kind of the same thing with video drone. It's the same thing over and over. It's kind of, it's that intensive, you know, sexual torture. And that's obviously not what we're getting with, you know, Marvel movies and Disney and stuff, but as they buy up all these other properties and continue to shove that nostalgia and that sameness down our throats, it's it's we're watching the same thing over and over. Same with video drone. He's watching the same thing over and over and eventually he kinda of goes a little bit crazy because of it. Yeah, certainly. And when we get into that the thing I love about the video drum and it's when it gets into it's uh when we get into the more fantastical elements when he starts having the hallucinations of his T V talking to him of David Harry's character um sort of appearing as this digital entity. She disappears just ra- really randomly in the film and then starts appearing as this digital entity to Max and to the point where he's interacting with her in in the T V 
we got those also memorable shots that of him sort of pushing his face into the tv screen we've got mm-hmm. videotapes that have like make like these orgasmic noises and and rive uh with potential of what they could potentially uh have and all the while there's while we've obviously been shown fantastical elements the in your mind you're kind of making sense of it the same way that max does you go along with it and it's kind of like this principle of like the insane person when you when you go insane does the world start making more sense and it felt very much the same when it with max's hallucinations when we compared to our films where they go in that hallucinatory sort of track to things such like jacob's ladder it becomes very sort of like confusing with videodrome it just seems to be oh we're going this route i'm accepting this and it's like he has a a chest vagina fine let's see where this goes and i never seem to find myself like baffled or uh confused by what's happening i just felt like very much this sort of natural progression of the story even though these are very sort of fantastical elements um did you find that you needed a couple of watches to sort of get into that or were you did cronenberg sort of sell the idea to you on that first initial watch no, I'm I'm kind of with you. It was one of those things where I'm just like, yeah, this is the next step. <laughs> this is what's supposed to happen. But that I think that's what also makes it unnerving and creepy on a horror level because that shouldn't be normal. You shouldn't be okay with that. These characters should be a little more lively and a little more frantic when coming across this. I mean, in the very beginning when he and when he's kind of hooking up with uh, Nikki Debbie Hare's character and she's like, yeah, just cut me on my shoulder a little bit. Any other person would have stopped what was on the television and go, wait, what's going on? But instead he's just like, oh, somebody beat me to it. Like it's just this little joke he makes, and it's like, well, hold on a second. What? And then obviously they progress further and further. So the intensity of a relationship going from not knowing anybody to at all to, hey, now we're in this thing together, it's, there's no progression. It's just and we're, and we're doing it. And it's it's a little unnerving and jarring, but like you said, you just you're kind of just okay with it. And you just go along, and it and it just works. I don't know why, but it just works. Oh, certainly. And you look at that whole sex scene between between Max and and Terry's character, and the fact, as you said already, the fact that he she's asking him to make cuts on her shoulder, and he's piercing her ears, and it as I said, it's got a very sort of grimy sort of charm to it. These are not traditionally erotic sort of images we're watching yet at the same time i mean it's sex in in movies has pretty much all been eliminated now that porn porn is so freely available we no longer seem to have sex scenes in films and here we have a scene which isn't very sort of traditionally erotic because it's obviously touching that bdsm uh sort of angle but Mm -hmm. at the same time cronenberg's not going far enough he's just sort of like he does what Cronenberg does where he's like giving you a taste of the dark side and he's like oh what'd you like to see about this how's this making you feel and then he pulls back before he goes too far whereas like I don't know with like Fifty Shades of Grey it's sort of like oh I'm just gonna throw this at you and just like revel in how shocked you are and by the foreignness of this world because you don't this isn't your scene then you're gonna sit there and you're gonna watch it whereas Cronenberg sort of like he teases you it sort of like makes you uh gives you that taste of what's happening on the uh, on the other side of the fence it's sort of like oh we've got these things over here how does this make you feel and i think with cronenberg and and sex in particular he's always had that sort of uh that deviant naughtiness to it which is just always it's just made it one of the more evocative 
elements of his work along with obviously like the body mutilation aspects and i think he's uh it's, it's something i've always wished that he kind of explored more i mean he did obviously try to explore with crash but obviously that's sort of way down in the fact that you're combining sex and and car crashes which i think is a completely different uh form of eroticism in itself so mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he kind of touched on it a little bit with the dangerous method, but he was kind of hung up on the psychology side of it with uh, Viggo Mortensen. I think he was young, or was he? He was Freud and Fast. He was Freud. Was yeah, yeah. So they kind of explored it there too, but obviously not as uh, dark, if you were, as it is with Videodrome. No, I think I mean with Videodrome, obviously, has the benefit of being released in the eighties, where you can obviously get away with these things more and. Um, I think the closest he would come to it again is when we look at History of Violence, where Viggo Morton's character is having sex with his wife on the stone, and he, she's getting him to tap into, to show him who he really is, because obviously he's been li- living this sort of like, you know, this small town life, you know, running the local diner, and otherwise been hiding this violent alter ego of who he was before and his wife trying to tap into that just mm-hmm. giving us that really sort of rough sort of sex scene on this on the stairs it's sort of like it's it's it's, it's what's kind of missing from cinema now i feel i think we've become very sort of sterilized when it comes to sex and cinema and i don't know if it's because of the availability of pornography or whether sensors just getting a little too sensitive yeah, i'm not too sure yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting line to toe. I mean, they ramp up on the violence and how creative it gets, and and you know how can we make it different? How can we make it more exciting and visually stimulating? But then when it comes to sex, it's like nobody wants to talk about it. And really, sex and violence, there's no, I mean, it's not that far apart between the two. Like the receptors in our brain, pain and pleasure, they're right next to each other. So, you know, it's funny as well the the fact that we're supposedly such a sexually liberated society, and yet. Uh, we bulk at uh, the idea of such things yeah. in our cinema. Yeah, it is. It is really weird. It, yeah. Um, and and as I said, I just remember like when they, seeing this film like originally when it it was shown on uh, sort of late night TV, and I didn't know who Cronenberg was. I had no idea what it was. I just just these clips that they show you of like the videotape and and uh, Woods Woods uh, interacting with the TV where you see like the screen push out, kind of like a like you would in like a nightmare on elm street uh mm. where the screen's sort of like pushing out and it it you've got the hand looking like it's going to break through but it never quite does it's this the screen takes on this very sort of like skin-like texture and it's oh, it's just these very interesting images and i think that's what drew me into it originally it was only when i returned to it later that i really sort of appreciate what it was because before it was just sort of like wow look at all this crazy imagery that you're not going to see anywhere else so yeah and and to pull off that particular uh effect in the 80s is impressive in itself like the way the screen is able to kind of you know stretch and flex like that and not really lose what it's supposed to be is is really impressive oh definitely and certainly when we get to the finale and we get the introduction of the cancer gun which i think i mean visually looks stupid but its effects is really cool Mm -hmm. when uh he obviously shoots the guy and his body's just basically torn apart by tumors i mean that was basically they created this life-size dummy and you had like four special effects guys underneath like basically ripping it apart and the behind the scenes photos of it you've got these guys and they're just like covered head to toe in like corn syrup and fake blood <laughs> just like from being underneath the stage and it's just like raining down on them 
was there like a, ever a point in this film where you think okay you you've gone a little too far here david and i mean for myself it was the cancer gun just because of how stupid it looks because in the early scenes we see where the gun becomes part of his hand that looks really cool but when it just like looks like this giant styrofoam finger that he's going around shooting tumors into people i thought uh Maybe just gone a little too far on this one, David. I felt like the effect, it kind of lost its appeal after a while. I mean, yeah, it did get a little more grotesque and a little more colorful as it went along. But, like, nothing, no other part of his body was changing, too. I think if we would have seen other aspects of him physically changing, it might have added to it. But after a while, it was kind of like, yeah, okay. But I tell you what, the initially of, you know, uh, I guess the cabling or whatever it was kind of going through his fingers and into his hand like even talking about it now i'm getting like you know chills and stuff like it's still obviously it's a fake hand we know it's a fake hand but it's still very jarring though just to watch it kind of move in and out of the skin like it's just it's it's very affecting all of it is still very affecting even you know the stomach vaginas they have and some of the pulsing and and moving videotape stuff it's still all very very affecting but despite the fact that it's you know a a obvious practical effect Mm. because i think if they try to redo it today it would all be very heavily cgi based and it would look terrible you couldn't take any of it seriously because you're just like oh well that's nothing he's just putting his hand into a green circle and there's some you know effect thrown in there granted it could be a very well done effect but you'd still know you'd still see it oh question me so i think this is certainly with when you look at the likes of like Del Toro and the Sausage Sisters, who are obviously using practical effects still, it just pays off in spades when mm-hmm. you have sequences like this. And I think it's also further added to when we look at Wood's performance. And as I said, when he when he first initially sees that chest vagina appear, because we have that that kind of sexy scene where he's just he's sitting there watching TV, he's got his shirt off, and he's got the the gun holster on for whatever reason i don't know why he's yeah i never understood that (laughs) (laughs) and he sees like this 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 chasm open in his his chest and he's there he's like poking it with his uh his pistol and he's like probing it and he's he's got this sort of real sort of curiosity to it i mean the fact that he loses his gun in his in his chest vagina is a scene i still don't understand it's sort of like why it didn't sort of bother you more the fact that you now have essentially a gun inside you and i suppose it adds up to the whole when when that scene sort of like cuts sort of snaps back into reality so to speak and his chest is looking normal and he's like pulling the setty up trying to find where the gun is and it just sort of like that question of did we actually see that is that hallucination i've i thought that scene is just really fantastic and sort of added to by uh by james wood so yeah I'd, i'd like to rewatch it um like maybe not monthly but every couple months to see if i can pick up on maybe certain scenes are supposed to be hallucinations hallucinations maybe they're not because i feel like there's times when he and i noticed this on the watching it the other day when he goes to put the tape in and watch certain things you know how uh, vhs tapes would have that like bit of static or bit of fuzz and then the image would come on There'd be times where it wasn't just on the television screen, but it was the entire film screen that you were watching where it did that. And I'm wondering if that's supposed to add into the confusion of what is and isn't real or what. So I think that'd be interesting to kind of look into. Yeah, it's I mean, it's uh, it's Cronenberg sort of like a director you've seen a lot of his filmography or is there sort of like large gaps in his his filmography? 
Say, I'm sorry. Say it again. Uh, when it comes to like the the Cronenberg filmography, right. have you seen most of it at this point, oh. or are there still sort of like large gaps for you to still watch? I thought that's what you said, but for some reason I thought I heard it uh, elsewhere. Okay. I've seen I've seen some of his newer work. Um, I've seen Eastern Promises. Really enjoyed that. Dangerous Method. I thought it was fine. Cosmopolis. That was different. Um, I'd like to go back and see some of his older stuff. Like I, I'd really like to check out Dead Zone, Dead Ringers, uh, Scanners, uh, Crash. Um, I, I still have yet to see The Fly, and I feel like that's something I need to see despite the fact that I'm not a horror guy. Like It's just a classic horror film that needs to be seen. Oh, definitely. The Fly is, is where he really becomes a maestro of body horror. It's When I first watched I mean, I will warn you advance, The Fly is pretty disgusting the first time you watch it. And then when you when you watch it a second time, you know what to expect. And you can get into the deeper sort of symbolism of it and, and the, how these characters are. I mean, it's obviously Jeff Goldblum um, doing a fantastic performance, teamed up with uh, Gina Davis. The the pair were both actually dating at the time, and the fact that they still have on-screen chemistry is just such a rarity. And it really... Com- I mean, compared to the, obviously the original 1950s original, which is kind of like a detective story slash B-movie, it's a very sort of different movie and... Cronenberg really takes it in his his own sort of unique way and a lot of people have seen it as like this analogy for AIDS obviously being released in the 80s mm-hmm. but it's really sort of an analogy of, of old age it's when you look at the transformation he undergoes and stuff it's it's really sort of an analogy of getting older and I think it's just an absolutely fantastic movie and I would certainly recommend if you watch, like video drama I would watch obviously don't watch uh the fly with food um <laughs> okay <laughs> you, you know when you when it happens you know okay fair enough <laughs> um but yeah certainly jeff goblin i mean jeff you know goblin's sort of like trademark awkwardness right right and it perfectly plays into this idea of this scientist who's created a way to trans- transport matter because he gets travel sick so how does he counter it? Oh, he creates a teleportation pod, so you don't have to worry about travel sickness that way. And it just perfectly plays into how Goblum is as like a a personality, and I think he just absolutely nails the character and just really gives it that sort of tragic edge that the film sort of needs. And I think it's one that you have to sort of experience. But as I said, just it is a little gooey, mm-hmm. um, and certainly Dead Ringers I would say is a really good one to also look at with Jeremy. Ian's playing sort of twin gynecologists. It uh, it goes in the same sort of hallucinatory sort of path as Videodrome. So that uh, certainly if you're looking for viewing, those are two that are on the same sort of level. I mean, Dead Zones, obviously, it's good. I mean, it's Christopher Walken. Yeah, I like Christopher uh, Walken, so. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's kind of an unusual film in the fact that it's... It, it, it's so different. I mean, it's, it's very good, but it's, at the same time, it's very different from everything else that Cronenberg's sort of done. Mm, okay. um, and, yeah, I mean, part of me just wishes that Cronenberg would go back to making these films. I think Existence was sort of like the last sort of body horror one that he really sort of went all out with. Um, and then from there, he's sort of been making sort of more... I don't know what how do you sort of describe him. I mean, he made things such like History of Violence and Eastern Promises, these sort of like very sort of grounded thriller sort of movies. Yeah, sort of... I feel like he's going more the psychological route, and you still have those yeah. bursts of 
you know, physicality. Obviously, there's some, you know, sexual activity and, and a little more intensive scenes in Dangerous Method. We obviously have violence in History of Violence and Eastern Promises, but a lot of it is just more of that mental and breaking down and building it up and different thought process and stuff. So maybe he's gone just from the body to the mind, and who knows what's next. Mm. Yeah. I think he definitely works better as a director than a writer. Um, certainly his one novel that he produced was... It was okay. It wasn't anything to certainly write home about. I didn't and, know he was a novelist. Yeah, he's um, he's done one book. Okay. Uh, which I will find out for you now what it is. It's It came out a couple of years ago. And I, was, I mean, I was really excited for when it came out. It's... Is it called yes, Consumed? It Yes, consumed in 2014. Huh. Um, again, it's it type is it walks that line between obsession with with labels and uh, materialism that Bryson Ellis did back in his glory days before he became a pretentious douche, <laughs> and <laughs> at the same time, it's. It it's he's there tr- clearly trying to transfer his sort of like love of the unusual and unique sort of characters into fiction film, mm-hmm. but it just it just never seems to go anywhere. It's kind of like American Gods. You seem to be like never seem to be actually going anywhere. Okay, <laughs> there's lots of things happening, but nothing really seems to, we never seem to be going anywhere. And I think that's what frustrated uh, me the most with it. But I suppose if you if you're looking for something for the reading part, then it's it's worth a curious look, certainly. So okay. But um, God. Uh, I just is there anything else that we haven't sort of touched upon that sort of stood out for you on this film? One thing that really caught me off guard was the score by Howard Shore. Um, Mm. I really, really dug it. Uh, I think more than I should have. It's a very basic score, just a couple tones here and there. Um, but it had this weird shining-esque vibe to it i don't know if it was because it was on like used on similar synthesizers or something but it had this just eerie quality of like something's around the corner or something's following you and it just really worked for me i mean it's kind of weird knowing that howard shore did this and of course he goes on to do you know lord of the rings and the hobbit and you know twilight and stuff like that but to have just this like kind of eeriness about his score in this film is just I don't know it just really worked for me I really really liked it yeah and I, I love the fact that it's it's never intrusive it never overpowers what's happening on the exactly. screen it's always this background sort of ambience and it's when you look at films such as like Drive Now um, sorry or Drive um, they're just constantly trying to tap into that same sort of synth score mm-hmm. and as you say it's a very simplistic score it's not as overpowering or as dramatic as the one we obviously get with like the likes of Scanners and it perfectly matches the world that Cronenberg is trying to create. Um, and it gives it everything this sort of ominous feeling, this sense of uneasiness. And the fact that, as you pointed out, it's just these simple tones. And so when we, when we look at other films that are trying to create that sort of dronescape, they always seem to like be over, over sort of like powering and distracting, where here it does all like perfectly soundtracks what's happening on the screen and, and keeps us on edge of that you know while if you happen to find these images on screen not unsettling the soundtrack will certainly ensure that it's sort of triggering that part of the brain that ensures that you are and yeah i don't, I don't know with the with the score if i would listen to it on its own or whether i need the imagery to go with it i mean i can certainly see the comparisons to the shining certainly with that opening 
score to the shining where we got the drive to the overlook hotel yeah um but and i mean uh, were you when the how the film ends i mean it obviously the, the score again it really builds to sort of this sort of it adds this presence it really uh builds that sort of climax of uh max choosing whether he's going to submit to the new flesh but i mean were you disappointed by the ending did it feel like it too sudden for you or i was a little disappointed um just because we're it's it's really just moving along and i feel two ways about it i'm disappointed i went a little bit more but then another part of me feels like uh you know like he kind of just gave up and was like well let's just do this instead but to me it doesn't seem like conducive to the story i wish something could have happened and there's like a drastic cut and then you know we're kind of left wondering what happened or i just i just wanted something on a high not a high note but just something like up just like that one last little shock instead of just like oh okay which is weird given what happened to say that about that um but yeah but you know what i'm getting at it's just a real like just something i wanted that little something extra for it yeah certainly it's i think i think because i've seen it that many times now i I sort of like see where it was going and certainly when the film was going to go for like a really serial sort of ending where where max would end up much like uh Derry harry's character this this digital entity and that would be how that they would uh, combat the video drone, and it would go off into this this bizarre orgy uh, esque where the where the two characters are reunited and they engage in this blood soaked sex scene where they're being having body organs rain upon them. Just looking at the spec script that Cronenberg had, and it all ended up being sort of like cut because of the filming schedule being as tight as it is in the budget not really sort of allowing Cronenberg to sort of fully go but I think even though he obviously had those budget restraints on him um, it, it sort of like forced him in many ways to sort of pull back on sort of the, the more outlandish elements of the film and I think it only made it the more stronger still because it goes weird but it never goes uh, too weird yeah because like you said it's enough to invite you into that world and entice you but then also enough to kind of push you away and put yourself in his shoes or make you think how would I react to it Uh, you know what are some of the deeper darker things that they're doing and it really just lets your mind explore yeah um so I mean for viewing if if someone enjoyed uh enjoyed watching video drum what would you sort of like pair with it Ooh, what would i pair with it i think i would have to go in a weird way i might even go a little more science fiction heavy and maybe even go like a district nine route um just because of the obviously there's you know minor body my uh, 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 metamorphosis in this but this one definitely goes to a full extent um you could even possibly even go with hellraiser if you go with the body you know metamorphosis and mutilation and stuff you can go that way too so i would go either way i would go hellraiser or i would go district nine very good choice um yeah certainly i mean i've mentioned already with like the the cronenberg catalog i think for myself i would go with like dev ringers and the fly if you're looking for more cronenberg um you can even check out uh, David's son, Brandon. He did a rather enjoyable film called Antiviral, which showed that uh, the obsession with viruses and infection doesn't fall far from the tree. As uh, his uh, debut film, Antiviral, from 2012, 
has a virus carrier who intentionally infects himself with diseases in order to transfer him across to different buyers. Um, and it introduces this really unique idea of people wanting to contract the same sort of like diseases as celebrities and the idea of um, in particular purchasing diseases off celebrities so that they can be sold off to their fans it was what as i said it uh oh yeah that sounds fascinating so what a hell of a concept yeah, it's... antiviral antiviral it's, uh as i said you can get it easy enough on a dvd i mean you if you um, go on Amazon, that I think it, it may be on Prime, but it, you can certainly pick it up cheap. It's while he, Brandon certainly hasn't got the same sort of flavor as his father. Mm. I mean, it's always the, the same when we look at any of the the children of these infant cerebrals. When we look at like Joe Hill, is not quite on the same level of his father Stephen King, mm. even though he does have his own sort of unique groove. And he's sort of getting. He's as I said, the more books he's sort of produced the more he's sort of finding his own sort of style and i think certainly his short stories have been really good um david cronenberg's daughter with her daily film surveillance again marked her out as a really interesting time to watch and certainly with its follow-up chained um further sort of like showed that you know she uh the further she moves away from what daddy's doing only the better for her and i think this is what what these uh these kids of famed directors and authors need to do is sort of like find their own craft and if uh if they can go under pen names as we obviously saw with uh Dewey Bowie's son who who obviously made like Moon and um Source Code and yeah he just did the Warcraft movie too he did with uh Duncan Jones um is the name he works under and I mean I like the Warcraft movie I thought it was a fun fantasy movie I think it obviously had had the weight of having this huge sort of fan base behind you who had their idea of what they wanted to see. But I mean, it, it, it was a fun movie. I enjoyed it. I, I honestly, I expected to hate it, but I like you, mm. I like surprisingly enjoyed it. I also really like, Oh, uh, what is his name? I like Ben Foster a lot. So anything he's in, I kind of immediately gravitate towards it, but I, I, I kind of want to see more of that world and what they do with it. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Oh, uh, Ben Foster is like, the greatest surprise badass he is isn't he he just kind of shows <laughs> up and like, it just takes it away oh my god when he was like first came onto the scene in six feet under and he's playing claire's like nerdy boyfriend and then he turns up in alpha dog and he's there kicking the shit out of everyone it's like where the hell did he come from there's uh i first started getting into him with uh 310 to yuma and then noticing him again uh like lone survivor and then most recently hell or high water but it was funny. There's uh, some reason that scene in Alpha Dog always gets brought up, and for the longest time, I can remember us watching that scene before recording episodes of FTS. Like just that scene, no, <laughs> no context. Just <laughs> hey, remember when Ben Foster? And then watching it, and then going into the episode. <laughs> uh, I mean, Alpha Dog was it was just surprises throughout. I mean, Justin Timberlake making his acting debut, and it's like, oh wow, he can act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just remember being like so surprised by so many elements of that film, and it and just the fact it was better than it was. Um, I thought it was going to be sort of like very sort of throwaway, and I was surprised at the caliber cast that they had, and the fact that it, in many ways it sort of like almost went as dark as Larry Clark's Bully, but it never quite crossed that that line, and and certainly wasn't as oversexed as Clark's worldview, certainly so. 
But I mean, I'm glad that you enjoyed Video Drone, Nick. It's, I'm glad that we were able to expose you to it, even though you did think you were going in, you were watching something else. So. Yeah, I really did. But you know what? I'm glad I was wrong because I really enjoyed this. Fantastic. Um, as for Cronenberg, I mean, Cronenberg at the moment is still. He's still out there in the sort of the directing wilderness, still trying to find funding for his films. At the moment, it doesn't seem to be anything currently coming up. Um, although he does continue to put in interesting acting performances, always playing doctors for some reason. Hmm. Whenever he's uh, turned in an acting role, be it in Alias or Nightbreed, he's always playing a doctor. And I'm really curious if I ever met Cronenberg to ask him why he always plays doctors. So, um, But thank you, Nick, obviously, for coming on and discussing video drama with me um it's been an absolute pleasure having you on as as always thank you very much man i i i'm glad your show is back i'm looking forward to the new episodes and i just appreciate you reaching out thank you and uh if people obviously want to come and find you and uh and check you guys out where's the best place to come and find you the best place is always frenchtoastsunday.com you can check out the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts um you can also find me individually over on the Lambcast from time to time and more recently over at exploding helicopter uh will slater's been recruiting me for a couple recent episodes so be sure to check those out as well but thank you again to my uh co-host nick for joining us this evening and uh Definitely go and check out French Till Sunday. It's a wonderful back catalogue of both articles and episodes that you got over there. But uh, until next time, uh, this is Edward Jones reminding you as always to keep it strange. <laughs>